0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? Hi Carrie. I'm okay. I am gearing up
1: for a busy couple of months and you know it's that kind of back to school time of year and I'm trying to remember all the things I love about autumn because I have started to feel that familiar anxiety that I always get when the seasons change and I have to face the fact that summer is over and there are a lot of things i love about autumn like clear blue skies and a crisp chill in the air can be fabulous i love a big scarf all these things but in my heart of hearts i will forever be a summer baby and uh, i've given up trying to pretend otherwise so yeah this time of year is always a little bit mournful for me for that very reason so i'm just
0: i'm trying to get over myself a little bit basically <laughs> how about you well i'm really there with you i i share some of your autumn anxiety and it's funny because you know, I grew up in New England, which is like autumn country, and I used to love going back to school. And I And I think I loved it because of that fresh start that you get at the beginning of every year. But the thing about being an adult in a job is that like your work never really goes away and and maybe it like subsides a little bit in the summer. But when you come back in autumn, it's just like all there and more stressful. And I yeah. find that like, very <laughs> confronting every year. So maybe we need to go on some kind of like autumnal walk with pumpkin spice lattes and sweaters and just really embrace things. I'm down for that. We'll make it happen. Yeah, Great. On to the show. Today, we are delighted to welcome the writer Gabrielle Zeman to Literary Friction. Gabrielle's latest novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, is an engrossing and moving story of a multi-decade creative partnership between two video game designers, Sadie and Sam. It's a really wonderful, engrossing novel, and a lot of it is about games. So we thought it was only appropriate to make our theme today, playing games. We're going to explore how games function in books like The Queen's Gambit or Mansfield Park, but we also wanted to talk about things like choose-your-own-adventure novels, the unique art of a game, and all the different ways that you can play games, especially in relationships. Before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Gabrielle Octavia?
1: I sure can, Carrie. Gabrielle Zevin's internationally best-selling and critically acclaimed books include the novel The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey and the prize-winning children's book Elsewhere. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is being developed into a feature film by Temple Hill and Paramount Studios, and production for the movie version of A.J. Fickrey, for which Zevin wrote the adaptation, has recently finished. She was born in New York, and she's the daughter of a Korean mother and a Jewish-American father. Both spent their careers working in computers. She now lives in Los Angeles. Also, quick reminder that we're on Patreon. If you want to support the work that we do and get gorgeous extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Lit Friction, where you will get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us. We've had some really, really fun topics lately, including book lists, during which we had some genuine literary friction and clothes. So if you would like to listen to those, hit us up at the link in
0: the uh, show notes. Back to the show, you can also find a list of all the books we recommended today on bookshop.org. Now stay tuned for our interview with Gabrielle Zevin, a discussion of all kinds of games in literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So let us monopolize your time and hopefully boggle your mind for the next hour of Literary Friction. My hands are literally over
1: my eyes, Carrie. (laughs)
0: Gabrielle Zevin, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we have asked you to start with a reading from tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Would you mind setting it up for us?
2: I will set it up for you. Um, I'm going to keep it really complicated today and read from the beginning of the book.
0: Excellent. We love (laughs) when authors do that.
2: On a late December afternoon in the waning 20th century, Sam exited a subway car and found the artery to the escalator clogged by an inert mass of people who were gaping at a station advertisement. Sam was late. He had a meeting with his academic advisor that he had been postponing for over a month, but that everyone agreed absolutely needed to happen before winter break. Sam didn't care for crowds, being in them, or whatever foolishness they tended to enjoy en masse, but this crowd would not be avoided. He would have to force his way through it if he were to be delivered to the above ground world. Sam Mazur, at age 21, did not have a build for pushing and shoving, and so as much as possible, he weaved through the crowd feeling somewhat like the doomed amphibian from the video game Frogger. He found himself uttering a series of excuse me's that he did not mean. A truly magnificent thing about the way the brain was coded, Sam thought, was that it could say excuse me while meaning screw you. Unless they were unreliable or clearly established as lunatics or scoundrels, characters in novels, movies, and games were meant to be taken at face value, the totality of what they did or what they said. But people, the ordinary, the decent, and basically honest, couldn't get through the day without that one indispensable bit of programming that allowed you to say one thing and mean, feel, even do another. He was nearly to the subway's escalator when he turned back to see what the crowd had been looking at. Sam could imagine reporting the congestion in the train station and Mark saying, weren't you even curious what it was? There's a world of people and things if you can manage to stop being a misanthrope for a second. Sam didn't like Mark's thinking of him as a misanthrope, even if he was one, and so he turned. That was when he espied his old comrade, Sadie Green. It wasn't as if he hadn't seen her at all in the intervening years. They had been habitués of science fairs, the Academic Games League, and numerous other competitions. Because whether you went to a mediocre public high school in the East, Sam, or a fancy private school in the West, Sadie, the Los Angeles smart kid circuit was the same. They would exchange glances across a room of nerds. Sometimes she'd even smile at him as if to corroborate their detente. And then she would be swept up in the valterine circle of attractive smart kids that always surrounded her. Boys and girls like himself, but wealthier, whiter, and with better glasses and teeth and he did not want to be one more ugly, nerdy person hovering around Sadie Green. Sometimes he would make a villain of her and imagine ways that she had slighted him. That time she had turned away from him, that time she had avoided his eyes, but she hadn't done those things. It would have been almost better if she had. He had known that she had gone to MIT and had wondered if he might run into her when he got into Harvard. For two and a half years, he had done nothing to force such an occasion. Neither had she. But there she was, Sadie Green in the flesh, and to see her almost made him want to cry. It was as if she were a mathematical proof that had eluded him for many years, but all at once, with fresh, well-rested eyes, the proof had a completely obvious solution. There's Sadie, he thought. Yes. He was about to call her name, but then he didn't. He felt overwhelmed by how much time had passed since he and Sadie had last been alone together. How could a person still be as young as he objectively knew himself to be and have had so much time pass? And why was it suddenly so easy to forget that he despised her? Time, Sam thought, was a mystery. But with a second's reflection, he thought better of such sentiment. Time was mathematically explicable. It was the heart, the part of the brain represented by the heart, that was the mystery.
0: Thanks, Gabrielle. I think that sets up the book really well, as it should, because (laughs) it's the beginning.
2: (laughs) Ideally, that is what the beginning of a book does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: you've done it here. And we immediately get the complexity of this relationship between Sam and Sadie. And also a hint that games are going to be a really big part of this story. So, you know, the theme of our show today is playing games. And I wanted to ask you first, why did you want to write a novel with video games at the center? Was that always an integral part of this story?
2: It was absolutely an integral part of the story. But I have to say, it's really strange when you're doing interviews, because I barely remember the person who started this book in 2018. It feels like a stranger to me at the point at which the book is published. I'm like, what was that former version of myself's motivations and feelings about this kind of thing? But, but in the case of video games, I, you know, became aware at a certain point in my life that I had played video games for something like, you know, 30 plus years and never thought that was an interesting thing about me at all. Never mentioned it in any of the books I'd written or in any interview I'd given up till this book. And, you know, I think for so many people born in the late 70s and early 80s, games are actually a really primary form of the way that generation consumed stories. And so that was something I wanted to write about in this book, the ways in which You know, video game storytelling changed the way maybe you experience the world, other people, even mortality. (laughs) I'm laughing. I don't know why.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, I'm really glad you mentioned that because, you know, the novel starts in 1987 and moves through the 90s and beyond. And I was born in 86 and I played games a bit as a kid. And I absolutely literally squealed at the mentions of the game Leisure Suit Larry (laughs) <laughs> um, which I used to secretly play on my uncle's computer game. And for years, whenever I mentioned it to anyone, nobody knew what I was talking about. And I kind of wondered <laughs> if it was like a weird, sleazy fever dream I'd had. So I was like absolutely thrilled. But it, uh, when I saw it in the book, I was like, I need to ask Gabrielle about nostalgia because there is, because it, it's this kind of period piece. And as you say, like our sort of shared generation, this these this method of play was very, very fundamental but you were also kind of writing a period piece, right? And like, I wonder if you see nostalgia as something with a strong connection to games in particular, given that we first learn how to play in a more general sense in childhood.
2: That's a very complicated question. (laughs) I apologize. Um, so I'll start with Leisure Suit Larry. We'll start way back at the beginning. But yes, I played Leisure Suit Larry as a kid and also experienced it as a weirdly creepy thing that no one else did except me.
1: I'm so <laughs> you know? I feel very, very seen right now.
2: But yes, it was games like that. You know, that that game was part of a, a company called Sierra Games, and they were one of the first things I thought about when I was writing, um beginning to write this book. That company was run by a, a husband and wife. The wife wasn't really a programmer. She was an English major and was much more into storytelling, but she invented basically a form of video game, the videographic adventure game. And the husband was the computer programmer. And this was in the early 80s, the beginning of like video games. And just thinking about their relationship, I think probably was something that started to be thinking about Sam and Sadie. But yes, I don't see the book as nostalgic in that sense. I think the older I've gotten, the more I realize it's almost an impossible task to write anything that is contemporary because it is difficult to understand the time you are living in when you are living there. So in a sense, almost every novel by the time it is published is period, (laughs) you know, and it's funny because it's a thing I bump up against all the time. For something to be novel means it is new. And so I think there's always uh, you want to depict the new, but you don't necessarily, you're always up against like the reality of, you know, time and space, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, so for me, I see writing about the past as a way to write about right now, you know, and so for me, video games were this great big subject and a great subject is like a bowl that contains many other subjects in it, you know, and so for me, writing about video games was a way to write about what it was to be an artist and a person in the latter part of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century.
0: Yeah, because I have to say, reading this novel, I I wasn't a big player of video games as a kid. I played a lot of computer games. I, of course, played Oregon Trail as a young American person in the 90s. But I didn't move on to games. And this book just made me appreciate games as art. And I wonder if that was kind of something you set out to do when you were writing it, because I don't think I'd considered enough just how narratively and artistically interesting that they can be.
2: You know, games are so young. Um, So we're only talking about about, uh, around a 40-year history total for games. You know, there are a couple of games before that, maybe 50 years total if you like go back to some of the earliest games. And when an art form is that young, it has no idea what it will be yet. You know, but if I when I looked at the history of video games, what i saw was a visual equivalent to the ways in which technology has changed our lives in so many ways you know you know that it's impossible to like get anywhere without using a phone you know like people used to know how to get places and now they don't you know but there's not really a visual equivalent for that being true but when you look at the history of video games you have something like pong in the 70s which is literally two lines and two dots and has a kind of minimalist beauty in its way. And then if you look at games that are from today, they basically look like movies. They have cinema quality graphics and and that kind of thing. And yet for all that, games are still an incredibly young art form and they're not fully, I think, evolved into what they could be.
1: And I mean, one of the things this novel thinks about, and this is a question that you can apply to any art form, but maybe it's sharpened a bit with video games because they're directly participatory, but are they a means of escape? or a means of engagement
2: with like an, a means of escape from or a means of engagement with life right and i think they can be both i was having a discussion with a friend of mine who is a novelist about whether books were political you know like whether her books particularly were political and we were kind of concluding that in fact if you are asian woman writing a book it is by its nature political even if you don't mean it to me. but 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 just to say that there are some authors that can write books that choose not to live in the world. And then there are some authors that write books that live in the world, whether by choice or by or having that forced upon them. And, you know, I think that's something I think about all of the time. You can use art to to escape, or you can use art to be more present here and to think about here. And, and there are some people that like that other kind of, of experience that like to escape. Sometimes I play games that way myself, for sure. Like, I don't want to be more engaged by them. And there are some people for whom games might be the way in which they can engage uh, most fully, or fiction can be the way in which they can engage most fully.
1: Well, and, and right at the center of the story is the creative partnership between Sadie and Sam, who we met in your reading right at the start. And Carrie and I were both so thrilled to see a platonic creative love, given the seriousness of romantic love, you know? The treatment of it is, is as serious as the kind of romance plots often are in novels. I feel like it's quite rare to find it in fiction, actually. And I wonder why you wanted to write about it. And also, why do you think it's rare?
2: It is rare because sometimes I'm asked for lists of books, <laughs> you know about <laughs> about that, and then I have to really think about what are true like platonic uh, relationship stories, and I can come up with sometimes like a half dozen of them, you know <laughs> that yeah, are yeah. that I think are really really good, and you know it's funny like. You know, we want to sort of oppose, I think, platonic with romantic, but I also think Sam and Sadie's relationship is quite romantic. You know, they have this romance of the mind, you know, it's just because it doesn't, it's not sexual, but it is romantic, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But for me, the book's probably, in terms of the Sam and Sadie relationship, I think, it started I started thinking about this because on my last book when you are a novelist you are sometimes forced to write personal essays and I can't stand writing personal essays. You know, I would rather people just read the book. But I wrote a personal essay for the New York Times and they titled it The Secret to Marriage is Never Getting Married, which it was a, an essay about the fact that my partner and I have been together for I guess at that time 25 years and have never married. Of course, if the New York Times decides to title your piece, the secret to marriage or the secret to anything, people will instantly hate you. <laughs> and I just like, I remember posting it and being like, I don't have the secret to anything. I don't have any secrets. I have no secrets. Um, but it because it was really just a personal account of my own experiences. And it was certainly not meant to be prescriptive in any way. But people immediately wrote back to me. And a lot of the feedback was that I could not understand anything about love because I did not have children. And that, you know, again, that I would understand if I had actually been married, I would not, I would know what I was talking about. And a lot of it was people, I guess, defending their own life choices by attacking mine. And I remember thinking then that it was quite cruel to say that I wouldn't understand anything about marriage or about love unless I had children, because, you know, you don't know me. You don't know if like that's something that I really wanted and never had. But in any case, I'm now 40, I'm 44 years old, that probably children will not be a part of my life. And this is the only life I have. And these are the only, this is the only love I will know in that life. And so it's cruel for you to say as a stranger that I don't know about love when this is the only love I will know about, you know? And so I think that's when I started thinking about the fact that there was a world of people out there like myself that were having different kinds of love stories.
1: Absolutely. And it's this weird social mania to kind of compare the depths and the profundity of all these different kinds of love, right? Like, I don't really, I think all right, right. It comes from people wanting to defend their own life choices,
2: but it's frustrating and maddening. And I'm sorry that you went through that online. That sounds no fun at all. It was actually interesting. I don't think, because I'm not a person who is online very much, and that's by design when I see people talk about me or my work online, it feels again, like an interesting science experiment more than it feels like anything about me personally. So if anything, what I felt about that was, this is interesting to know that so many of you feel this way, (laughs) you know.
0: One of the other great things about Sam and Sadie's relationship is that it's a creative partnership. There's a line at one point, uh, Sadie thinks, Sometimes she didn't even like him, but the truth was she didn't know if any idea was worth pursuing until it had made its way through Sam's brain too. I loved that. And I loved thinking about creative partnerships and and how rare and special it is when you find one. I mean, I I kind of feel that way about Octavia on this podcast. And... (laughs) 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 bomb Don't be disgusting in public, Uh, Carrie. Sorry. (laughs) I just have a lot of love in different ways, you know? But I was thinking about also you as a novelist and, and how, you know, in a lot of ways, writing is about collaborations with other people, but it's, it's a lot more solitary than maybe making a game would be. And what's your relationship with kind of collaboration and creativity? And, and can you just talk a little bit about that in your own life as a writer?
2: I can talk about that from the point of view as, as a filmmaker and also from the point of view as an, of a novelist. So to speak as a novelist first, yes, there are many years in which book writing is very solitary, and then it becomes filled with people, you know, and the first person who it is filled with is your editor. And I think book editors, I've had intense relationships with book editors, you know, sometimes where we haven't even like ever met in person, you know, while we've done this really intimate thing, because there's really nothing in a way that more, that is more important to me than the books that I write. And so to let somebody collaboratively into your process is a truly intimate experience. And so I think I became interested in in the idea of the work wife, you know, the fact that there could be somebody who you spent more time with, shared shared more of your thoughts and life with than an actual wife, you know? (laughs) And so for me, that has been what my editors over the years have been like. And then there are so many people... You know, it's funny when your book comes out and this book is done really well, people will congratulate you for things that were accomplishments, not your own, you know? And so it's like, I wrote the book, but then in terms of how many people it takes to actually get a book out into the world, how many really creative people, you know, it starts with that editor and then, you know, the marketeer, the publicists, like, you know, and many more people beyond that, that I don't actually have interaction with you realize how many people it takes to put art into the world. And that's something I didn't realize when I was starting out. I mean, I have a partner I've worked with as a filmmaker. We have a movie that's coming out actually on October 7th. Tell us about it. Well, it's The Story Life of A.J. Fickery. It's an adaptation of one of my, of my book that came out two books ago. And we've made, I think now, three films together over the years and lots of other theater and other kinds of art. And, you know, I think when you when you work with somebody over many years, as I have, you know, there are times when you don't like that person, but they know so many things about like your process. And they're just essential to, again, knowing if something is good and worth pursuing in a way, you know, and so some of that that line that you read definitely something I think about when I think about my partner. You know, so so again, the ways in which art is incredibly solitary, there's only one one name on the cover of a book, you know, or when we see a movie, we just see like the five actors and nothing else.
0: As I was reading this novel, I kept thinking about what a great storyteller you are. I just, I could not stop reading it. And I always think that's kind of one of the most magical things that a writer can do. It is, it does feel like a kind of magic, but of course it is It's not magic, it's hard work and graft. So (laughs) I wanted to ask you about storytelling. Like, is that something you've really thought about and honed? And are there practices that you've used over your career to, to make your
2: narrative as kind of
0: compelling as possible?
2: I mean, I probably have a really long answer to this question that could go on for a long time. Go but ahead. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say, you know, in, in terms of a little practical thing that I do, something I have done for a really long time is I read over every single thing that I have written before I start writing every day. You know, and so it's because I want to be in the exact place that the reader is going to be when I get to the work that day. And it gets really difficult when the book starts to like approach 500 pages, you know, and at some point you have to say, well, I'll just read the last hundred, you know, <laughs> or something. But I don't, I think sometimes when you read something that is not propulsive, it may be because the novelist has forgotten what it is like to join the story in that order, <laughs> you know? And I think the other part of it is, you know, it's my 10th novel I think there are many novelists who had it all figured out from the moment they wrote the first book, but I am not one of them. And you know, I think my first novels are not bad, but they are, you know, they were the best I could do at the time. And so I think if you get into a place where you organize your whole career uh, around the idea that you're going to defend the early work that you did by what you write subsequently, I don't know that you can kind of grow and improve. And I do see like young novelists do that. Like They're so uh, wrapped up in the response to it for good or for bad that, you you know, the rest of the books you write end up being a response to the things that have happened with those prior books. And anyway, so for me, a great gift as a writer was probably the pandemic, as weird as that is to say, because it was a horrible time in so many ways and continues to be a, a bad time in many ways. But for me, the pandemic, what it did was it created this environment that was incredibly quiet it felt like I was writing my first novel again in a way, but with all the experiences of having written all those other books too, like I just didn't hear any voices and I didn't actually think about audience that much because it didn't feel like necessarily there would be publishing or even the world at the end of it, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, and so for me, I got to a place where I just was writing in I think a more pure way in the same way that I was writing when I wrote my first novel. So by the time I got to the end of it, I remember feeling really satisfied. I remember thinking, I don't really care what happens with this book because I have written exactly the book I wanted to write, which I had never felt before. There's a line in the book about the long period of time when your sort of taste exceeds your abilities. You know, I think that would describe me.
1: I really pulled that out to ask you about it because it was so resonant. It is so true and that frustration between that in that gap, right? Where is the quote is there's a time for any fledgling artist where one's taste exceeds one's abilities, the only way to get through this period is to make things anyway and Carrie and I both found that like
2: such an important message. Right, that should basically be my author bio on the flap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That and and, it, and you know, in a way, it sounds like I feel really, pre- like careful when I want to say this because I don't want to insult the work I've done before. A lot of people loved it, loved a lot of the things I did, and I'm grateful for them. And I'm grateful for the people that, again, chose to make books with me when I still felt like I was in that period. When you know you're there, it's the question is whether you choose to acknowledge it or not. When you know, like, I haven't written something as good as the things that I like. I think some people just maybe decide they forget, you know, the things that they liked in order to kind of just keep going on or you hold that in your head and you know that you know maybe someday you will get there and but you have no idea how. And so for me, I felt like with uh, with each of my books, even some of the ones that did less well, that I had learned things and improved and I really felt like by the time I got to this book that a lot of uh, that I had reached that place a little bit for me where those two, the gap had narrowed between taste and ability. I want to come back to
0: the thing you said earlier as well about being a woman in the arts and and this in part being your reflection of that because um, one of the things that really comes across in this novel is, is Sadie's struggle to be taken seriously as an artist, especially in a world that is so male and often quite sexist. And I wonder maybe if you could just talk a little bit more about that, about about your experience and, and what that's been like for you as a woman.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I've done a, quite a few interviews with gaming podcasts or people from the gaming industry and they're like, how did you get sexism in the gaming industry so precisely accurate? I'm like, because it's almost identical to sexism in the publishing industry. They are very similar. And I think sexism in many places They kind of play out in similar ways. But, you know, for me personally, you know, I always think about the fact that supposedly most women don't realize that the world is sexist until they are about four years into their first real job or something like that. And I would say that that was true for me as well. You know, I think I had a mom who told me I could be anything. I could be president. And it never really occurred to me that, oh, but there's never been a lady president. But I did not really feel sexism in my life in a real way until my first novel was published. And immediately I was like, whoa, this is, they're calling this women's fiction. What? What's women's fiction? Oh, that just means this book was written by a lady. And that seemed, it kind of like blew my mind because I don't know anybody that really wants to uh, be told that they haven't written fiction they've written women's fiction, you know? So that was kind of shocking to me. And then there's all these sort of small sexist things that happen where you realize, especially at that time, so my first novel was published in 2005, you realize the absolute delight in which at that time, white men were greeted when they like wrote their first novels in a way that there was not, it did not seem the same delight for most women, you know? And I have an example uh, when my novel, the story life of AJ Fickrey came out. You know, it did. It, it's a book that ended up selling a lot of copies all around the world, but the reviews in the trades—so I mean, like Publishers Weekly and you know what have you—none the, of them were starred. Um, or maybe one of them was starred, but most of them were like nice but the audiobook which was read by a man like all of a sudden people were like this book is wonderful you know and like every single review was starred and they were so like rapturous and he won like prizes for his reading and and I do think it's a really good reading, but I think it's funny how much people preferred that book when there was some man around to give it like authority. You know, <laughs> when it was my book, it was just kind of like a silly little love story. But then when he was reading it, people noticed like the craft of the novel. And, and so I always use that as a silly example, I think of of what it's like, I think, to be a female writer writing, like writing books, you know, and, and I do think there are ways in which as a female novelist, you have to be so rigid in how you present yourself. And it's almost exhausting. Like, because I have done, quote, dirty things in my career, I've written screenplays, I've published books for young adults, you know, there's always somebody right nearby waiting to say that, like, my book is less than, you know, because I have done those things. Versus, like, you look at somebody like a Neil Gaiman, you know, that just doesn't happen, you know. (laughs) And, And so I see it all the time in small and big ways, you know, The ways in which, again, and and, and, uh, I don't know, you know, but over the last couple of years, the last thing I'll say in this long rant is that, you know, I noticed when I started out, it kind of felt like most kind of women's novels that got praise were often quite short. You know, they were usually sub 300 pages. And in the last couple of years, I think in the last even 10 years, we've started to see like really big women's novels, you know, like Meg Walters, The Interestings, or Hanya Yanagihara, or Min Jin Lee, or Elena Ferrante, these big books that are like, you know, doorstops. And I remember looking at these books and feeling uh, jealous, you know, (laughs) and thinking to myself, you know, I really want a big canvas of my own. You know, I want to be like, the Jackson Pollock in the room at the you know Museum of Modern Art, I want to be this thing that's allowed to take up this much space. And and so there was a way in which when I found the subject of games, I was like, this is a big subject. And it felt like a big subject that people hadn't really written about in quite this way. And I felt, you know, excited to, again, paint on a really big canvas.
0: It's so funny because so many of those books you just mentioned are some of my favorite
2: books. And I,
0: I really felt this was a big canvas, which is so exciting. The last question I want to ask you is kind of related to that question about sexism, which is part of this novel. Well, Sam's mother is Korean, Marx is an Asian man, and both are really battling stereotypes about what they're allowed to be. You know, Marx is an actor for a long time, but he realizes he isn't really getting the parts that he thinks he should get. And that's that's in part because people see that he's an Asian man and make certain assumptions about him and it it felt like that was a a theme that kept coming back in in this novel and i wonder why why that was an important part of the story for you as well
2: well i am i have an identical background to sam's i am half jewish half korean american my mother was born in korea and my dad is eastern european jewish and for many years i didn't think that was really something interesting about me though all of my books have been written i think from the lens of a biracial person but I've never actually written somebody who was exactly like me. Um, But over the years, I think when I started out, I saw fiction as a kind of mask I could wear that the less anybody mistook me for anybody in these books, the better from my point of view, you know, but over the years, I've just kind of let that mask slip. And I think for the first time, you know, I really wanted to think about the way I experience being particularly a biracial person in the world You know, so often in books, you'll see biracial people depicted in such a way as to be able to have somebody that's a person of color without really understanding anything about that ethnicity. And, you know, so from my point of view, being biracial is actually a particular identity, you know, and that was something I really wanted to write about. Sam Sam says it at one point, he says, to be half of two things is to be whole of nothing. You know, and so I think that was something that was the core of of what I wanted to write. You know, and yes, so I have worked in Asia. So Marx is actually half Korean and half Japanese. And so when I had worked on in Asia making an adaptation of one of my books into a film, I had noticed that there was a particular kind of racism in Japan against people that were from other countries, even if they were like ostensibly Japanese presenting. And so I I was interested in that and just the ways in which there are many, I think we sometimes think about Asian American identities or Asian identities as if they are just one thing. But in fact, there are many, many, many kinds of Asian identities. And I wanted to write about some of those as well. You know, so in the book, you do have, you know, Marx's identity. He's a half Korean, half Japanese, an English speaker, who is American-born, but has spent his whole life abroad. And that's a very particular set of things, you know, where you have Sam, who is half Jewish and half Korean, but has no real relationship to the Jewish side of his family at all and doesn't look Korean when he's in Koreatown, you know. And so that was something I wanted to to write about. And then you have everybody in between, Sam's grandparents, who are Korean-born, obviously kind of based on my own Korean grandmother. and And I just wanted to show that, the kind of like, I think you know, again, the word canvas comes up, but the kind of like rich sort of, again, the rich subject that in fact, um, Asian American identities and Asian identities in general can be when you're not just thinking like that it is one thing, you know, and, and I guess a point for me overall as a biracial person is that, you know, I realize very much that right now, you know, we live in a time when we're talking about appropriation and appropriation is a subject in the book. And it's something I think everybody who works in publishing or or makes art thinks about a great deal these days. If, if you're, if you're smart, you're probably thinking about it, you know? And, you know, so from my point of view, I realized that I sat in a particularly interesting position being a, a person of two identities and that in, in some ways that granted me authority to write about those two identities. But in fact, the thing you keep coming back to is that the only identity you truly know is your own. <laughs> you know, so I can't speak for all Korean people or all Jewish people or, or anything like that. The only really truly, the only true identity I have 100% access to is mine and the rest. And, and this goes for writing characters in general. You're talking about distances from you, you know, all the time.
0: Gabrielle Zevin, it has been fascinating and fun to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been really great.
0: Okay, so the larger theme of our show today is games. And I wanted to start, as we often do, with a personal question. Octavia, what is your relationship to games and do you like playing them?
1: I do like playing them, although I think there's definitely been times in my life where I've played lots of games and then times when I haven't really played games of of all kinds, right? But to talk about computer games first, like once my parents figured out that they could be educational <laughs> as a kid. I played quite a lot of them on my old desktop computer, like games like Zimbinis, which was essentially a maths and logic game, or my absolute favorite, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, which taught you geography while you tried to track down this like exquisitely glamorous and very mysterious she-villain as <laughs> she fled around the globe. And I didn't have siblings. So, you know, for me, it was like a, a good way of entertaining myself. And then when I got a little bit older as a teenager, I had some friends who had Game Boys or they had proper consoles and we could play like Street Fighter and Tekken and those kind of games, which I absolutely loved. And I was not allowed them because they were violent. And then I got a bit older and I just lost the habit totally. And then in my early 20s, it seemed like the only people I knew who played video games were young straight men glued to FIFA or Tomb Raider. And I found them to be extremely boring spectator sports. And actually, when I was thinking about this question, this line from Ocean Vuong's poem, Not Even This, came to mind, which goes, do you know how many hours I've wasted watching straight boys play video games? (laughs) Which is a sentiment I think is highly relatable. Um, But now I play games a lot more again because I live with a straight boy (laughs) who actually makes video games. And it means that I have a very different relationship with them because a lot of really great games cross my path all the time. And, I, and I'm now close to somebody who can really teach me how to appreciate them. And I do. So yeah. What about you?
0: I'm extremely competitive, as we know. <laughs> um, and so I love games. I love sports. I love board games. Do you love games or do you just love winning, Carrie? No, I love playing games. Like People who aren't competitive don't understand that the pleasure of competition. You know, obviously I love winning and sometimes it's upsetting when I don't win. But because I'm so focused on it, the concentration of the act of playing a game is so pure. And that is, it's like a drug. I love it. Fascinating. So I, yeah, I've, I've always played board games. I I still play things like Scrabble, Settlers of Catan, those kinds of games But I have not been as much of a video game player in my life. Like you, I definitely played educational computer games with my sister as a kid. We never had a video game console. And I think it was partially because we were two girls. And that just wasn't something that girls did. And so I never picked up the habit. I never really learned how to do it. I could play Mario Kart and I loved Mario Kart, but that was basically it. And video games have always felt a little bit inaccessible to me. And uh, one of the things that I liked about reading Tomorrow and Tomorrow was that it kind of made me feel like I could understand games in a way that I hadn't before.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, they're storytelling vehicles. So if you like reading stories, then you can like playing games, right?
0: Yeah. But okay, so we know you like playing games, but do you like reading about games?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think yes, because they can reveal so much about a character and how they move through the world, right? Like, are they nakedly competitive? Are they petty? Are they a sore loser or like a magnanimous winner? Like, do they cheat? That's a great one, right? It's a kind of gift for a novelist to use as symbolism or as a, a, a kind of shortcut to show us who somebody really is. And then I think also, yeah, they can just, they can carry, they can carry a lot of sort of thematic symbolism. I'm thinking of that card game in Dickens's book, Great Expectations, maybe you've heard of it, Um, (laughs) that symbolizes the power dynamics between Estella, Pip, and Miss Havisham. And so Miss Havisham insists that Estella and Pip play for her this game of cards, um, which is, of course, something that actually is happening on several different levels, right? Because she's kind of pulling the strings and manipulating these two young people, towards one another. And then I was thinking about Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, which is obviously full of games and kind of driven by almost a game logic. And then a novel, which I have not read, Disclosure, but Dostoevsky wrote a novel called The Gambler, which apparently uses roulette as a metaphor for the way that life can be seen as a, I guess, a mixture of strategy and also total randomness, whether you kind of win or lose in life, just like the game of roulette. Um, and the roulette wheel is like the wheel of life. So, you know, there's a lot there, I think for writers and when it's, when that kind of symbolism is deployed well, I think it's really rewarding because it's very instantaneous. Like we've all played games as children, even if we don't have a practice of play in our adult life, which of course we all should. So yeah, I think it can really work. What about you?
0: Yeah, well, immediately my answer to this question was like, yeah, I love reading about games, but then I was kind of struggling to think of examples of of games that I've really loved reading about in literature. And I wonder I wonder what that is. I think maybe part of it is that a game for it to be successful in a narrative really has to be playing out some larger dynamic, as, as you pointed to. So one of the things I did think about was um, Mansfield Park, the novel by Jane Austen, and the characters are playing this game called Speculation. And they're, of course, acting out all of the larger dynamics at play in the situation. It becomes this pers- perfect kind of microcosm of the relationships that these, that these people have to each other. But then, you know, I could see a game being very boring, in a novel, if it was just a play-by-play of something that was happening. So it always has to have some other element to it. So we got into this a little bit with Gabrielle, but do you think of games as an art? Yeah, I
1: definitely do. I think a good game, whether it's a word game or like a strategy game like chess or a video game or a storytelling game, there's an art to all of it, you know? Um, and an art to designing it and also an art to playing it and playing it well. I mean, I think, you know, when you watch a genius chess player as they wipe the board with another genius chess player, you really, really do see the art in their play. And like watching chess can be extremely boring, but when you kind of key into it, it's in- extraordinary to see people's skill. And I think, you know, when it comes to video games, like kind of as Gabrielle was saying, it's such a new art form and we're living in a time of the most incredible potential, right? It's kind of racing ahead of itself as an art form almost now that they can be like films in their scope, but also just more innovative in terms of storytelling. And I think that there's a really interesting relationship shaping up between literature and narrative games. What about you?
0: Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think they're definitely an art form. And I would really recommend that people seek out an interview that Ezra Klein does on that on the Ezra Klein Show podcast. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, have you listened to this too? Yeah. Um, with with the philosopher of games called um, C. T. Nguyen, and the interview is about a lot of things, um, why kind of Twitter has been gamified and what that means. But he also just talks about the philosophy of games and games as art, and he makes this really compelling case about what the art of the game is, which has to do with, um, he talks about art as being a crystallization of something. Um, so like painting is a crystallization of seeing, music is a crystallization of hearing. And he he talks about games as a crystallization of doing, which I thought was such a wonderful way to put it and, and just kind of like fit some puzzle pieces together um, to use a very apt metaphor for me. He talks a lot about role-playing games and how we can embody whether it's like just a skill or a whole other person that's that's the thing that games give us that other art forms maybe aren't quite as directly good at and and that's a really exciting thing and i think some of the most innovative and exciting games give us the ability to do that so yeah i think they really are an art and um and an art that as you say there's so much exciting stuff in store given how technology changes totally How about books as games? I couldn't help but think about choose your own adventure novels here.
1: Yeah, which I did not really read as a kid. And for no good reason, other than I think they just weren't crossing my path um, because I definitely would have loved them. (laughs) But um, I was thinking of the 1963 book Hopscotch or Rayuela by the Argentine writer Julio Cortázar, which I've talked about on the show once or twice. But the title, of course, refers to a kid's game. And this is a book that I suppose in a way is like a choose your own adventure in that you can read it in lots of different ways. You can read the chapters in different orders. He suggests at least two different readings. And then there's these chapters that are kind of considered potentially disposable. So you could just ignore them. And if you do read them, they'll change your understanding. Of everything else. And so the idea is every time you come to the book, you can generate a different question, a different kind of philosophical query, a different understanding. It's quite hard to describe, but it is an incredible work of literature and you can play it a hundred times and always come up with a different result, which I think is so clever.
0: Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. I I never really was a huge reader of Choose Your Own Adventure novels. I, there was something about them that always seemed a little too obvious to me somehow. I, I don't know. I kind of wanted somebody else to to be giving me a narrative rather than choosing it myself, you know. Maybe it takes away the escapism or something like that of of fiction. But I did love Carmen Maria Machado's use of the form in her memoir in the Dream House because it's this. It, she's she's talking about basically she's using the choose your own adventure device to show how in an abusive relationship you might have a false sense of agency, but you always kind of get to the same place and. Yeah. That was a really, really powerful reading experience for me.
1: Yeah, same. It was so smart and so demonstrative, right? As you say, creates the feeling. Okay. So, what is your
0: recommendation on the theme of games?
1: Well, I'm going back in time to a novel called The King Must Die by Mary Renault, or Mary Renault, sorry, as she preferred to pronounce it, because it felt important to include a book set in a world where the stakes of winning or losing are life. And death. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a historical novel.
0: I get, sorry, I just pictured the movie trailer with you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: right. It's my side hustle is now a um, movie trailer voice. Um, but this is a historical novel that brings to life the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, which is obviously kind of a fabulous source text anyway. And Mary Renock kind of creates the the figure of Theseus, and we follow him. It's it's really a bildungsroman as well on his long journey to Crete, and he has all of these adventures along the way. But the kind of big one from which the novel takes its name is a rigged game in a place called Eleusis, where. Every year, the disposable king must die. That's the only rule of the game, is that the king must die. And it's not a massive spoiler for me to tell you that he finds a way to survive, but um, it's a great novel. I recommend it very heartily.
0: I need to read her novels. You've been talking about them for so long.
1: Oh, she's so phenomenal. Mm. What
0: about you? What's yours? We haven't really touched on sports, and I really want to do a sports show, although I know that's going to be... um, I might drag you kicking and st- screaming to the no, arena listen, it as be they say
1: a for me but I will it would be an education also. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but anyway, I did quickly want to give a shout out to um David Foster Wallace's essay Roger Federer as religious experience which you can find online if you google it. And I basically I think this essay does the best job of anything that I've read for making the case for the beauty of sports and for tennis in particular. And it made me understand both what is great about Roger Federer, why he's so good, the incredible set of skills required to master the game that he plays. And, and also just a, like expanding the idea of what we think of as art and, and spiritual experiences and, and kind of bringing sports into that conversation, which I, I really loved. okay, Carrie here, back with Octavia and Gabrielle Zevin to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start, please?
1: I would love to. And mine's a bit of a surprising one for me just because it's written by a man and I haven't read a book by a man for a little while. <laughs> um, not on purpose, but anyway, this one is called Yoga and it's by a French writer called Emmanuel Carrier, um, translated by John Lambert. And, um, it's a funny one. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I read it, which is why I want to talk about it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I, I enjoyed it. And then I was frustrated by it. But he's basically known, he's very well known in France um, for what he describes as non-fiction novels. So we're kind of in the territory of, of autofiction, that troubling old word. And this one is ostensibly about yoga and meditation, except it actually ends up being about everything that yoga and meditation are designed to help with, namely the torments of a mind that's falling apart. And he tells us his mind has been at times terribly tormented, but he's just had this really good stretch and life is looking pretty good. So he decides to write what he thinks is going to be a nice little book about yoga, which he's practiced for 30 years. And he's a a person who does lots of deep meditation. And so at the beginning of the book, he goes on a silent retreat for research. But once he's there, things completely fall apart. And the book takes a turn into being about what happens when the mind actually breaks down and also when tragedy hits the outside world. So he calls in the terror attacks in Paris, the Charlie Hebdo bombings. And it's kind of this fascinating, strange breaking down of a human being. So he's almost masochistically exhibitionist about himself. Um, He frequently calls in his own vanity, his own narcissism. But I never found himself pitying. And so there's, you know, there's parallels to be drawn between him and Carlo Vinausgaard, but I find Carrier's voice much more compelling personally because his way of writing and his way of storytelling really, really makes it feel like he's sitting opposite you, talking to you. There's quite a lot of humor in there, a lot of self-deprecating humor, but it it kind of works. And it's very focused on himself, of course, but it's also full of really interesting digressions which take you outside of his self-focus. So yeah, it was very compelling. I'm not sure I loved it like I said, but I I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. And I think mainly because of how much freer white male writers of memoir or memoir adjacent books are to just show themselves as pretty unlikable. Like it's very hard for women writers who are writing in the memoir space to show themselves as unlikable without knowing they're going to get a wave of opinions about it. Whereas the male author is kind of allowed to just be kind of gross and still be considered like an elevated mind. So I don't know. It's left me thoughtful and the writing is very good.
0: Cool. Um, I might read that. (laughs) 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 Won't put it on the top of my list, but I enjoyed hearing you talk about it. Gabrielle,
2: could you recommend a book for us? I could. So the book that's stuck with me the most of the things I've read this year is probably Trust by Hernan Diaz have either of you read it?
0: Not no. yet.
2: My sister used to babysit for him. What?
0: Yeah. That's my Hernandia's anecdote. But I've, I really want to read the book cause I've heard great things about it.
2: You know, it's a really interesting book. I think there are, you know, it's weird. Like in America, money is the, the subject of so many books or money is the thing that drives so many books, but it isn't often the subject of those books. And I think what's interesting about this book is it's particularly about money, how money is made, how fortunes are made, how we tell stories about about money. And so for me, it was completely fascinating. It takes some big formal risks at different times. I would say I was intrigued and went with it the whole way through, though I think, um, you know, again, there are some pretty big swings formally in it, which I think are cool. you know, and and also, you know, it's a book that is, You can't really talk about it without spoiling it, so I'm speaking very vaguely, but it it is also about women and women in money, and that is not obvious when you're reading the beginning. The beginning of the book kind of starts out in this particular like old-fashioned sort of storytelling, and it almost seems like you're reading one of my favorite kinds of things, which is like The Lady in a Madhouse or Sanatorium novel. (laughs) you know? <laughs> and and you're, like, you're like surprised. You're like, I thought this was going to be about like financial systems in America. And so it ends up being um, really intriguing in this first quarter of the book. And in fact, it was, I was so intrigued in this first quarter of the book that it was difficult to kind of move to the next narrative voice in the book. But I think it's a completely interesting, risk-taking, fascinating novel. I can't recommend it highly enough. And I keep trying to get people to read it. And I think people are turned off by the fact that I'm saying it's about money because money is still somewhat like distasteful to read or speak of, you know, and yet drives so many things. You know, Mm. I think it has a happy, let's say, a skeptical message about capitalism, too, if that's going to draw on anyone. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I really want to read it. And it seems like another novel that's a canvas. So. I'm going to recommend a graphic novel this month, which is called Allison. And it's by an illustrator and author named Lizzie Stewart. It's Stewart's first book for adults. She's written other and illustrated other books for children. And it's narrated by Allison, who is basically telling the story of her life. She starts as a woman from a small town in Dorset. She gets married very young. She's pretty unhappy. And then she's seduced in her small town library, by a visiting artist who is a very famous artist who lives in London and she leaves her husband and she leaves her life and she moves in with him to London. And it's basically the story of, of her being his muse. but then you know speaking of speaking of how we become artists and how we hone our craft, it's about her discovering herself as an artist. It's about breaking free of him, making her own friends, finding her creative self, sexism influence the creative process failure the complicated role of muse and it's both very gentle as a story but also very moving and I love it refuses to be black and white about anything it's thinking very very deeply about what art is and how we become artists and I love the way it's designed too you know sometimes it's the kind of panels that you would expect in a graphic novel, but sometimes it's just pages of text. And sometimes it's like, it's almost like you're looking at a scrapbook. And I thought that really worked. It really took me by surprise. And I cried a number of times reading it. It's a really beautiful book and something that felt really different from a lot of the other things I read. So I would recommend it.
2: It sounds really lovely. And I find that I love, and I guess I've written a book that is about the process of of making art. You know, it's kind of its own little, little genre, you know, when you find those books.
0: Yeah, I am a sucker for art about art always, yeah. <laughs> as I have realized. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I would honestly really recommend it. And you can also read it in like 30 minutes, which is, well, not 30 minutes, but, you know, I read it on, in a train journey and it was very, uh, it was excellent to to just like have a gulp of this book. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Gabrielle Zevin, to Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris for editing and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary
1: Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on NTS.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Lip Friction. You can also get in touch with us by email, lipfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. <laughs> it makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. I'm just trying to spice it up, Carrie. No one listens never, to this bit anyway.
0: do do it like that. <laughs> We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I am Carrie Plitt with Wacky Octavia Bright, (laughs) and and this is Literary Friction.